Good evening. I'm going to do this week like I'm a 1920s New York radio <laughs> broadcaster. Today, what's the topic? Today our topic is... Um, it's uh, not, we have a title, we don't really have a topic, do we? we? Yeah, our topic is the other side of the coin. Exactly. Yeah. New perspectives. We're interviewing so, professors instead of students. Yeah, exactly, yeah. because, you know, we're chatting all this, chatting this, chatting that, saying all these different things about what it's like to be a student, but... What about the other people? Exactly. The we, other place. Yeah, we've just done an episode on workload, so now it's very interesting to see what the professors have about actually making up these courses and the structure and the workload. Exactly. They're the silent minority on this one, aren't they? Because we give them a lot of flack. We really talk a lot about... We chat. Yeah. We, we chat. We slag them off a lot. <laughs> Sometimes it's justified. I will, though, say we don't flag off specific professors or anything. Oh, no, no, Just no. the... You know the structure that they live in, that they work within? I think... And they e- have little to really change about that. I think it's easy to be frustrated a lot of the time. And when you're frustrated, it's natural to look for an outlet, look for someone to blame. The faceless professor, you know. I have a question for Morgan. What are you the most excited to learn about the professor's perspectives? Gosh, I want to pick their brains. I want to know their thinking. You just want to become a better student? I want them to spill all the secrets, let the cat out of the bag, whatever metaphor you want. I really don't. Spill the beans. I'm most excited to just see what their mindset is going into it. I have no expectations, honestly. No expectations? None specific. I mean, I think they're all going to be very engaging guests because we always have engaging people to talk to. And if you're an academic, generally generally speaking, you're probably going to be quite an interesting person. Honestly, I love all the professors I've had so far. They're just interesting people to talk to. Yeah, so I don't want to know X, Y, and Z. I just want to just to be a facilitator, Mm -hmm. a platform for the flow of ideas. So who are we talking to today? Today we're going to be speaking with uh, Professor Keith Bender from the Business School. And then we're going to talk to Dr. Himamala Tenakun, also from the Business School. A new addition to Aberdeen University, so that's going to be an interesting perspective. And then lastly, Dr. Stuart Durkin. I'm looking forward to all of those. Me too. Professor Bender, thank you very much for coming. Would you like to introduce yourself very briefly? My name is Keith Bender. I'm a professor of economics here at uh, the University of Aberdeen. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you, yeah, too. I, say, I think I'm the only one in the room who's never had you for a lecture. Well, next uh, hey, autumn, all- you're more than welcome. There's always time. <laughs> there's always time for economics. Exactly. If it helps, I did read a little book that was called like Introduction to Economics. That helps a lot. But it's not quite as fun and as exciting as my class. Right? No, exactly, because <laughs> your class is very fun. Well, Absolutely. <laughs> and I wanted to ask you, I was, I was kind of curious about that, because I think um, we all know how first years are they often don't like to do work i was wondering if your decision to include all of the little sort of personality bits in your first year course was a, a try to get people to come along and, and actually engage when they could just stay in bed uh, you're you you found me out yes that's, that's exactly exactly what you have to do it is particularly at the first year because that is such a huge transition for students as they go from high school or secondary school into first year and students are already having to deal with many many different uh things you've got to get them engaged and uh sometimes you can do that with the material um but economics, as you know, can be a bit dry and boring sometimes. So I try to spice it up a little bit to give students an extra reason for coming. Yeah. But you've been a professor for quite a long time, right? Uh, So yes, I graduated back in the dark ages of 1994. um, (laughs) And actually, my first academic job was here uh, at the University of Aberdeen. Uh, I was here for three years on a postdoc, uh, then went back to the States, but then came back here in 2012. So I guess about 25 years. Yeah, it's a long time. Yeah. And you also taught in the States, right? I did. I taught at the Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. 
China uh, for a year. And then most recently, before I came back here in 2012, taught at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee for 13 years. So your sort of breadth kind of runs along to the axis of time, but also the axis of geography. Do you think there's more difference between the different places you teach or as, a, as opposed to the times? Is it an either or? I, I or, think, or I, yeah, I, absolutely. I, I Those think are not both, mutually exclusive. Yeah. No, I, I, th- I think there's a there's been a huge change, um, both in, in terms of the, the mechanics of actually teaching is, is quite a bit different now than it was before. I mean, certainly back in the in the 90s, it was certainly chalk and talk, right? I mean, mm. Everybody had a blackboard. Um, if, if you were really good, you had a, an, an overhead projector that you used this little wheel mm. to uh, to move things on. And then you were always um, angry when nobody uh, erased or wiped off the, 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 the marker. Um, but it was clearly that's that was the height of technology um, was uh, was to use that. And certainly now we have all kinds of different ways of uh, engaging students, both within the classroom, but using all the variations that things like my Aberdeen can use as well. So I think there's a lot there. Um, in terms of geography, that's probably slightly less. Higher education, certainly in most developed countries, the US and the UK and Australia and, and Europe, um, sort of follows a similar pattern. It's probably a little bit more what we call modularized now. So it used to be back in the day, all those many years ago, <laughs> where where courses here, certainly in the UK, tended to be a, a year long or maybe even over, over the whole honors years. And so you wouldn't take exams at the end of a term. You may not even take them at the end of a year. You would take them at the end of your program. So I guess that's good in the short run because you didn't have a lot of exams, but then you had very high stakes exams at the end that would really sort yeah. of um, give you your degree classification. And you were a bit more locked in to what you were doing. And most certainly. But it's quite interesting you say it doesn't change much from America to here because when we've interviewed students, they've had a completely different experience when they've gone to America on exchange or something because they felt like there were more smaller elements keeping them up to date with their assignments and they felt like they were almost like spoon fed the content a little bit more than here. In the States. Yeah. Um, it's okay maybe, if you maybe don't agree. In, yeah, maybe in general, I don't. I don't think that my teaching is is, yeah. is all that different. But perhaps, um, depending on on the courses that you're taking, um, I think there's a little bit more recognition of the of the sort of small group um, interactions here um, in comparison to the state, uh, except for the very large, like the first year lectures that, that yeah. I did here, where we did have tutorials, sort of third and fourth year courses tended not to have small small group sessions or tutorials um, like we tend to have here. So I'd say that's one of the bigger differences is actually that you get a maybe a better chance to actually inter- engage with your lecturer here in some sense than than in the States. Probably what you get in the States more so than here is a little bit more variety in terms of the courses that you can take both within your your major, your degree classification, but also or your, in your degree, but also across a, a kind of breadth of, of different kinds of modules that you can take. Yeah, because I mean, obviously my understanding of this is very limited because I've never studied in America. America, but it's is it not the case that you can declare later and then before yeah. that you have that freedom I suppose exactly yeah. it is a little bit dependent on the kind of university that of you course. go to so there are the so-called liberal arts universities where you take a very wide breadth of, of modules before you get into your degree uh, when you declare your major as they call it there but those are almost prescribed so the, so that's what I did when I was an undergraduate I went to a, a small liberal arts um, university and so we had to take a science we had to take a math we had to take a social science we had to take an arts we had to take a physical education. You had mm-hmm. to take a, a module in each one of these sort of very broad, um, they call it general education requirements. In larger universities, you don't have that, but you still have the flexibility that you can take a lot of those a lot of those modules. But yes, you, you, you can delay until very late in, in terms of declaring a, an actual major. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I find it very hard to picture because obviously there's something similar in first year in which you have your prescribed courses. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I was a history student and you had 15 courses and then you could have the whole, the, the remaining um, 45 to do whatever you want. 
wanted. But then after that, it very quickly narrowed down to the point where you had to go just to the essentials. Right. Yeah. The, the Scottish system is somewhere in between the, the American system and the English system, which, of course, there's very little um, choice <laughs> at all when, when you start the English system, which I think is to the detriment of students, both operationally in the sense that if you get in there and then you decide, oh, my goodness, I don't I don't actually want to do economics. What am I going to do? You, you really wasted a, maybe a year. And it doesn't build the breadth. And so you don't have that opportunity to take an economics class if, if you're a history, uh, you know, you want to do history or you want to do French or, or something else, um, even though you're signed up to do a particular uh, course. Do you think about that when you structure the courses, especially the first and second year courses, that you might have a lot of people who aren't necessarily interested in studying economics, but just taking it for the sake of interest? Yeah, so certainly we do that for my class in the sense that first year microeconomics class um, is a required class for any degree within the business school. So even students who are not going to do um, economics um, who are going to do business management yeah. or accountancy and such um, need to take the class. And then we end up getting a large number of, of students who, who just take it because their parents told them they had to take it or they might think it's interesting or they might have heard that uh, Professor Bender was, you know, an easy an easy mark or something. I don't know. Um, I haven't but, heard that. Uh, no, okay, that's good. So you do have to devise it in, in such a way there is a general interest. The constraint that I have in my class is that there are certain things that I definitely have to talk about because because I do have economic degrees yeah. and they've got to be prepared for the second year. That must be quite difficult. There seems to be two forces pulling in opposite directions. It is. Yeah. You know, and if we had the resource, maybe we would pull actually pull them apart and offer a, a slightly more generalist kind of economics class that wasn't maybe quite so technical in some respects and then offer another uh, another module that would be a little bit more technical that you could get. Yeah, because I, I remember in the course it was one of the things you said very early on was this is not going to involve any maths. Right. <laughs> and that was one for the non-economics kids. That most certainly is. But in a way, it kind of gives a disservice to the economic students because once they get into second year, boy, we hit them over the head <laughs> with, with the economics or with the mathematics. So yeah. it's a tough balancing act. Yeah, absolutely. We talked a lot about how much freedom you actually have within your department to shape the courses depending mm. on all of these factors or if there is something specifically you have to live up to so you're more tied with the courses you choose to offer. Yeah. So in economics, we have quite a bit of freedom actually within a particular module to set it up in a particular way for almost all of our modules, um, there are some where that becomes important is where you have sort of professional um, qualifications or professional societies that mandate a certain amount of information. So, for example, accountancy, you know, there are professional exams and professional um, qualifications that you need. Um, they actually specify, even in the first year economics course, what kinds of things that I need to be able to cover. So, for example, I need to cover supply and demand. That's one of the things that they say. So, that's why I'm a little bit more constrained, perhaps, compared to upper level modules where there is a bit more freedom because in economics we don't have a professional organization in that sense. I see, I see. Just switching gears very briefly, if you'll allow me, I was wondering how academics see the balance between teaching and research. I kind of felt like perhaps some academics see teaching as sort of like the day job, sort of the chore that they have to get out of the way in order that they can get on with the thing that they really like, which is the research. How do you perceive the two things? Personally? Or, yes. Yeah, well, so. personally, and then also how do you gauge the sense of your colleagues, for example? Yeah. So for me, I think teaching is fundamental to what I am as an academic. I mean, I, I really feel quite passionately that my profession is a calling. It's not a job. And part yeah. of that is teaching. It's about educating students and hopefully get them as excited about um, economics as, as I am. And that's part of my job. But part of my job is also to try to push the boundaries of research and try to contribute on the basis of that as well. And I think that there are very strong interrelationships between Absolutely. the two uh, as well. Maybe 
less so at the first year level because it would right. be very difficult for me to introduce too much of my research into that first year level. But when I've taught postgraduate courses, been able to integrate my research yeah, and that's yeah. where you sort of hit nirvana because then you can do both at the same time. Right. And indeed, my research informs my teaching. And there are times where I've gotten research ideas from my teaching and the interactions that I've had with, uh, with students. So personally, I think that that's extremely important. In terms of my colleagues, I think in general, most feel very similarly, okay. um, but there is heterogeneity amongst um, staff and some of them are much more focused on the research. And so I think you're probably right. They sort of see teaching as something they just have to do to kind of pay the bills. And then there are a variety of staff who really focus on the teaching. And we have a number of teaching and scholarship staff who just absolutely love the teaching. You know, the research is not where they're mm. focused. They will bring in research and try to integrate that into their modules. But it's really the teaching and, and a lot of the innovation around teaching comes through those kinds of staff yeah. members. So I think we're much more broad than what we what we might have been even 25 years ago okay. when I started my career. So as you go further up from the undergrad to the postgrad to the PhD, the dichotomy kind of breaks down, I guess. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Because it should be becoming much more research-led sure. uh, by that point. And of those academics who are across the spectrum who have a difference, is that just born out of their personality, that they just take to teaching more than, or whether they just like to sit in libraries and read books and these <laughs> kinds of things? I mean, I, yeah, I think it is a lot of personality. Just people are drawn to different parts of academia. So um, some are more drawn to the research, some are more drawn to the teaching. Some of us are, are somewhere in the middle and, and like both things. That's quite interesting. You'd hope that your teachers were drawn to teaching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. But I mean, yeah. because you have these different levels of teaching too, even the researchers can be extremely effective at the postgraduate yeah. level or, or the PhD level because they're the ones that are, are really, really, really pushing mm. the boundaries of research and to pull along PhD students, for example, um, you need those kinds of teachers too. They may not be effective in front of a first year class yeah, and in, yeah. in front of three or 400 people. That's a, that's a very yeah. different kind of thing than when you're teaching a small seminar of maybe five or six people who have a lot of background in the thing that you're teaching. And it's just a different skill set. So is it you as department head who help structure the courses and who are drawn to postgrads and who are drawn to first year courses when they're teaching? So do you pick the teachers who teach the different levels according to that? So we certainly elicit the preferences of staff to sort of say, well, what, what kinds of things are, are you wanting to do? Sometimes we're able to accommodate that. Sometimes we're, we're not just yeah. because of we have a teaching need and we need somebody in there. Uh, but we try, I think, as much as we can to make sure that it fits because we want people, again, who are enthusiastic and passionate. And if you're uncomfortable in front of a large crowd, um, yeah. that would be a really bad situation for both the staff member, but probably also for students. And you don't want to have that kind of situation. Or if you have somebody who isn't pushing those boundaries of, of research and putting them in front of a bunch of PhD students to try to teach mm -hmm. them the cutting edge, yeah. that also would be bad for Quite both. The staff member would yeah. feel stressed out about not knowing the stuff and it doesn't help the students. So as much as we can, we try to make sure that people fit into the job really well. Um, we actually have some listeners who are not actually at university yet. Oh, right. What mistake do you see being made by undergraduate students consistently that you would advise them to avoid? <laughs> falling behind. <laughs> it can happen to anybody. It can happen to a staff member as well. But I think particularly in the first year, that's the thing, that transition going from high school or secondary school to university. I think one of the biggest things is the amount of self-learning that you have to do that, that, you know, when you're in high school or, you know, you've got classes from nine in the morning until three in the afternoon and you're sort of looked after, um, mm -hmm. spoon-fed perhaps yeah. for, for that amount of time. Here, you know, you may have four, four, six hours of lectures a week, a couple of tutorials. It means you have a lot of free time, which on the one hand is great, 
you can fill that with lots and lots of things. But the expectation is, though, that you're filling that in with a lot of time reading, revising, um, working on papers and that kind of thing. And I think where I see students at the first year struggle the most is when you don't do that and it starts starts to snowball and try to get caught up in one class and it makes you um, fall behind in another. And that's the biggest thing. So prioritizing and, and time management is actually a huge yeah. thing. I wish what you were saying didn't speak to me as a third year, <laughs> unfortunately. No, I mean, it's a challenge for all of us. If we want to talk about ancient history and what happened 25 years ago when I started and now, clearly there's a much more time pressure now on everybody and we all can get behind easily and time management's a huge issue. In terms of how you then structure your courses, do you think about this philosophy about time management when you are especially approaching first-year courses about the workload and how you divide that out? Yeah, try as much as we can. But again, in a module like mine, where I've got not only economic students, but I have any student from the yeah. business school, but then I've got students potentially from any other discipline within the university. I can't know when there's a philosophy essay due, and I can't know when there's an engineering test and, and such. I try to build in enough into the module so I give students an easy way to keep up with the material. So smaller deadlines? So smaller deadlines. Yeah. We used to have an essay, and while I think it's really important for students to write continuously, that was a, a big issue because, of course, you've got this essay and then you might have another essay and, and other essays. So that was a big time crunch. So we moved to multiple choice exams, which are not all that exciting. Um, yeah. But what it allows us to do is can have it just run it off of my Aberdeen and, and have, have you do it on a Friday. It just takes 30 minutes. You can do it from anywhere because it's on, on my Aberdeen. And it gives you this sort of touch point um, every two weeks. You can go and do a touch point and find out how well you're doing within the material presented in the, follow, in the previous two weeks. And it should, if the students take it in the right way, it should give them a touchstone to say, well, listen, I didn't do particularly well on that quiz. It's a small percentage of my overall mark, but this might be an area that I really need to focus on when I'm revising for the exam. So, so it flags up potential trouble points before yeah. it really gets to it, the crunch time. At it, the exactly. So having many small things um, might be more beneficial than one sort of medium-sized essay, for example, that you submit towards the end of the module. We're late getting it back to you and it really doesn't yeah. help you very much. I mean, it was a big shift in this module for, for us to move away from the essay because there are some very good things about having an essay and ability to write and to talk about and to, to go into much more detail than you can on a, a silly multiple choice exam. Yeah. But we can't do that every other week. Um, we just don't have the time and the resources and goodness knows students wouldn't want to write a, an essay every other week either. So there, there is that balance that we have to do. Wow, brilliant. Well, thank you very much for talking <laughs> to us. Great. It's been very, very fun. Thank you. Cheers. So that was Professor Keith Bender. Yes. Who you had never met before? No, but he's so nice. He's lovely. Such a yeah. nice man. He brought all those first year memories back. It was great. And it seems like he really is a teacher who cares. Yes. Yeah. I think teachers like him, they find that golden spot between giving you all the information you need and helping you as much as you need and making all the advice available to you without prescribing you a set way that you have to do stuff. Yeah. I think it was interesting how the the quizzes, the small quizzes had come about as a trial and error process with the essay being yeah. the beginning and then that not working for the students mm. and engaging them. Yeah, I think that... So it's very adaptable. I think that you really do have to be realistic about what you can ask of first year students. Yeah. Yeah. All students, obviously, but first years in particular. Yeah, It was also quite interesting to hear professors' perspective of the America versus UK yeah. study structure, because he mm. seemed to think it was very similar, which is yeah, yeah. I think it's, Yeah, I think it's good to get the other side of the coin. Yeah, 100%. 
So, welcome. Thank you. Do you want to quickly introduce yourself? I'm Dr. Hema Malitennakun. I'm a senior lecturer in management with the business school. I recently joined the university, so I've been here for about four months now, and I'm from Sri Lanka. And you used to teach in Sri Lanka, right? Yes. Yeah. I started teaching in 2007, so this is my 12th year teaching. I've taught in Sri Lanka and in the UK. Uh, where else in the UK have you taught, or just in Aberdeen? I was in London for four years during my PhD studies. I was teaching at uh, Kingston University, London. Um, we're very interested in seeing how the differences are between the different countries that you've, you've taught in, yeah. and then compared to here. So what would you say is the biggest difference between when you taught in Sri Lanka and then when you came to the UK? I would say that the students are more or less the same. (laughs) They have the same concerns, they have the same level of interactions with the lecturers and same concerns basically. But if you look at the um, education system, I used to teach for a teaching institute that is following the UK curriculum. It's basically the same education system, the same sort of curriculum and the same values and the structures. So in in that sense, I wouldn't say that uh, It's different uh, in Sri Lanka. But in my country, we have another system. I was teaching for a private university that was following the British education system. But we have our public sector universities, which are quite different to the UK system because they're they're governed by a local uh, body and students who come out of the local A-level system get into that university system and only the very fortunate ends up in the public university system. So the majority who do not get the top marks end up either going to private universities like the one I taught or some of them they migrate and they come to countries like the UK, Canada, US, Australia, etc. And the other, some of them, they go to technical universities or technical colleges and they There is a percentage of students who cannot afford to go abroad or to go to a private university end up entering into, you know, entry-level jobs uh, without a university education. So I would say that that would be the difference between the education system here and in Sri Lanka. But you taught at a partner university? Uh, I was teaching for a partner university, yes. Okay, so that really isn't that different? Not much of a difference, no. And the student culture largely similar between Um, or differences? Yes, the student culture, it's slightly different because in, in my country nobody would address a lecturer by their first name <laughs> uh, it's always either miss or doctor or professor yeah. uh, but here I have had uh, students send me, sending me emails as uh, hi Hema Mali just Hema Mali oh hey or just, you know. yeah, yeah. so uh, we would never get that in, in Sri Lanka <laughs> um, uh, anyway you wouldn't call an adult by their first name in Sri Lanka so I think that's, oh, it's, I it's a cultural thing so okay. yeah students can be friendly uh, but back home uh, because we pay a lot of attention to them we're just not the lecturer we go beyond that Um, and sometimes when you see a student who used to do very well in their first year not doing that great in their second year and we've we've taught them for a long period of time and we notice these differences and we would just stop the student uh, if if we meet them in a corridor and ask okay what's going on you're you're lagging behind and they wouldn't mind that but I'm a bit reluctant to do it here I don't know if people don't like their privacy being invaded and students some of them they think that okay they're adults so they're quite independent here so I wouldn't do that here but in Sri Lanka people wouldn't mind I mean students would actually like it getting that attention from a lecturer and mm. I think in the UK it's more a case of um, students are encouraged to volunteer that information but they wouldn't necessarily expect someone to come and ask them yes yeah. so yeah. we're like a second set of parents to mm. our students back home so they, they quite expect it I mean it, it's nothing new but here I, I think 
some might not like us. Yeah, especially yeah. because with our mentors, our personal tutors, yeah. we're expected to email them if we have an issue and not yes. really the other way around. Yeah. Well, students have uh, mentors appointed for a cohort of students, so that uh, mentor would be ideally a person teaching them that semester, yeah. uh, and that mentor would stay with them throughout their university life, you know, for three years or four years. So this mentor knows in and out of you know the students' uh-huh. issues and maybe sometimes even their personal um, issues that they have. So I think it, it's it's good in a way that you give people a lot of independence here when you turn 18. Like I said, it's a cultural thing and then even parents can be very overprotective of the, the students that we have. Sometimes we've had parents come and talk to lecturers about the students' grades and wow. their absences. But here students take care of it themselves. They would write to the relevant department, they would go and talk to the lecturer and they'll sort it out. The parents, I, I've never seen up to now parents coming to talk to lecturers, yeah. but it can happen back home. Yeah. <laughs> they will bring their parents. I really can't imagine that. <laughs> they're, they're old siblings who are studying in, in the senior levels and all mm. sorts of people. So. so would you say you then have more time almost here to actually do the essentials of your job than you would back home? I wouldn't say I have more time. I don't have that particular concern, but my time is taken up with other tasks like meetings, administrative tasks. Uh. And uh, even though you don't meet students one-to-one that often, you still uh, respond to a lot of student emails because students are comfortable emailing their concerns here, so that yeah. takes up time. Yeah. So you spend a lot of time on administrative stuff? Administrative things and uh, supervision of students and uh, curriculum development and there are other uh, small projects that are happening within the business school, so you contribute to some of those things like the REF that's happening, the research uh, assessment exercise that's taking place these days, so you have uh, paper reviews to do. And you find you're doing a lot more of that here than you were uh, in Sri Lanka? A lot of research-related activities, yes. Uh, Because back home, we are purely a teaching institute and we don't have a lot of time to do research. So compared to here, you have two semesters or two terms here, uh, but back home we have three terms. So while you are away on your summer break, it's another (laughs) semester for us back home. So Uh, we we don't have that, you know, four-month or three-month break. So continuously we, we are working throughout, except during... December, Christmas holiday, and then Sri Lankan New Year happens in April, so we get about two weeks there, and other than that, we are working throughout and teaching most of the time. So here, you have the summer break to look forward to and <laughs> concentrate on your own personal research projects. Are you looking forward to those research projects? Yes, there, there are projects that I have started and uh, kind of got stuck halfway through because of teaching commitments, so you need to sit down and read and collect data and analyse, so for that, you need more time, so I've put those things uh, for later when I have more time. In our previous interview, we focused a lot on the different types of academics out there, those who want to focus more on research and those who are more into the teaching aspect of it. Where would you place yourself on that spectrum? My personal preference is to do more research, but I know that you can't be a purely research-focused academic in the British education system because you have to teach a certain percentage, you have to do administrative work, Uh, there's a certain percentage allocated for that, and then you can do research. So it's given that you have to do those other things but preferably I would like to do more research so my role here is teaching and research so I teach about 60% of my time I teach and then another 20% of admin work and a 20% set aside for the research. Yeah. Which levels do you teach at uni? This semester this is my first semester yeah. at Aberdeen so I taught uh, final year students fourth year students. Yeah because that's one of the other things we learned where our previous interview we were talking about how 
he likes to prioritize those who then prefer the research to yeah. the older students because then it intertwines more with what they're doing. Yes, yes, it, it would be interesting really to teach the final year students who understand a bit about research because they have gone through a research methods training yeah. so you can relate to some of the things that you have done and you can bring in those uh, examples into your teaching and they would understand what you're saying rather than first year students who are still, you know, Yeah, new. just getting the ropes. Uh, yes. Yeah, we were interviewing students last week and one of the big things that came up is one of the crucial um, skills of being a student is Self, that self-discipline and that really making your own schedule is that similar to being being an academic as well i would say so yes uh, i mean after all we're all human <laughs> sometimes we tend to put things off and especially if you have a deadline a marking deadline and and you would rather be reading a research paper or writing a research <laughs> paper you tend to put that off but then there will be an email saying look you're five days behind in submitting your marks so then <laughs> yes you have to get on with it even though you don't like the yeah. marking part so yeah. you, you do have to prioritize your tasks but if it is a large cohort and if you are the only person marking sometimes it's difficult yeah. but here I, I think uh, you have a lot of support you uh, I mean back home you would have a class of about uh, 100 students and then you will be the only person marking that entire lot. But here you have uh, teaching fellows and sometimes even at, I think, level one and two PhD students helping you with the marking. So that, that support network is here. So okay. we, something that I, I, I haven't seen in Sri Lanka, yeah. So um, you were talking about how you have been teaching for a lot of years and mm -hmm. how time management is something you also have experience with. Yeah, yeah. How much do you think of their students' approach to time management when you plan out the coursework? Okay, uh, I'll first give you the uh, lecturer's perspective on yeah. how the students should manage time because at the beginning of the semester, you get your course handbook yeah. which outlines, okay, in which week you will have to submit your various components of, you know, the, your individual assignment or your group assignment, etc. So you know well in advance how to um, sort of manage your time. But the problem is students think, okay, this is the first week, my submission is in the 12th week, so let's worry about it when it comes to maybe the 11th yeah. week. And then if you have like 110 students like I had uh, in the previous semester and everyone starts their work in, in the last couple of weeks and you're the only lecturer who's teaching that module. So you cannot give a lot of support in that last two weeks, even if they want to come and see you one-on-one -on -one and get some advice. So then they will get frustrated, we will get frustrated, and they will submit something last minute, which might not be really what they yeah. could have submitted if they had spent more time. So my advice to students would be, you know how many modules you're doing uh, in a particular semester, and you know when each module assessments are due. So plan ahead, and there are certain things you can do from week one there are certain things you cannot do from week one because you have not been yet taught that particular part. So as and when you finish a particular part in a module, uh, add that to your assignment or start from day one. Don't wait until last minute to yeah. start on your assignment. Students, they, they think, uh, okay, it might be a stupid question to ask and I may be the only person asking this sort of question and I really don't want to embarrass myself kind of attitude, yeah. but it doesn't work like that. If you ask for help, I'm sure any lecturer would be happy to help. Do you think that approach also 
that openness to question has been impacted by your time in Sri Lanka where you were much more connected to the students? Well, in Sri Lanka we don't have office hours basically and uh, the office layouts are different and here you have these uh, separate uh, office rooms and sometimes you don't even know if the lecture is in there, if there's no, you know, a part for you to see inside the office. But yeah. in Sri Lanka you have these open plan offices so the business school, all of us will sit in one large room in cubicles so students can see who is there in each cubicle and they can just walk in. So we would just tell them if you look into the business school, if you are there in our seat, please do come in and uh, talk to us. But that is sometimes problematic because <laughs> you have like uh, constantly students walking yeah. in and out and you're co- trying to concentrate on something, mark an assignment and there's someone coming in. So there's that, you know, the negative side of it as well. But uh, So maybe somewhere in between would be perhaps yes, what you'd be yes, looking for yes. maybe. Well, some lecturers say, okay, between these, you know, 10 to 12 we can mm-hmm. come, but others, they just, you know, open a door policy anytime you can walk in. So, <laughs> yeah. What is the biggest thing you like to take from your past teaching experiences and then bring here to Aberdeen? I think connecting with students, I yeah. think it's important for me. Like I said, students are very friendly and open in Sri Lanka, so it's easy to do that. I think because I'm new here, I'm still building up these relationships, getting to know students. They have not seen me before and here I am suddenly coming in there finally <laughs> and teaching and saying I'm from Sri Lanka. So for them, I'm a newcomer stranger. So it will take some time to build up that trust and, and connect with people. But I'm happy to say that this semester, majority of the students that I taught, they were quite willing to come and ask questions, so they, they think that I'm approachable, so that, that impression I have given to them, so I'm happy about that. But it will take time for me to get to know, because I don't teach first-year students yet. Yeah. If I do do that, then when they come to the final year, they know who I am. I've taught them at several points. In but you would hope in the future to teach the lower years so that you can build up those relationships yeah. over time? It, it depends on the modules that I'll be yeah. assigned to, so hopefully, yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much for talking to us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. She's so approachable. If I was a stressed yeah. out first year, I would have a talk with her. Yeah, she she mentioned how she really likes teaching final year students because, of, you know, they just know more. But I think she'd be so good at teaching first years and second years too. Have you seen that meme? It's like um, if uh, if university had parents evening. Oh, you know? <laughs> no. And it's like, it's like, so how's my son getting on? And he's like, I've never seen this person in my life. It's quite funny know. how she talks about how the parents would oh, get involved. Yes. Like, yes, that's true from that's Sri Lanka. Crazy. Yeah, it seems like a very different university culture. I honestly have a serious struggle picturing that. It makes perfect sense in a high school context, but the idea that... (laughs) That the parents would be involved in that way at university is, is quite quite incredible to like, me. I, as a student, I would feel like so demeaned just oh, from my parents so, taking over and be like, so why is Kathleen getting in and applying this class? You know? Yeah, really mortifying, I think. Uh, yeah. No, and they would just embarrass you so hard. Yeah. Hi, Stuart, and thank you so much for coming. You're welcome. But, Catherine, what happened to your voice? <laughs> Did you take a break between the, the second and the third interview and smoke an entire packet of cigarettes? Is that what happened? I'm sick. I have a cold. And because professors are obviously much busier than students, we couldn't record all in one day. So I'm very sorry for the error in continuation. And that's just a little peek Behind into the world the of podcasting. Do you want to maybe introduce yourself to, to the people? Yeah, sure. I'm uh, Stuart Durkin. I'm a lecturer in politics and international relations in the School of Social Science. And I'm also 
uh, Director of Teaching and Learning in the School of Social Science at Aberdeen. And that's quite new, right? Uh, yeah, I've been Director of Teaching and Learning this semester, so it's a new role. It's a brave new world. And what does it entail? I chair the Teaching and Learning Committee within the school. I'm, I'm also responsible for quality assurance, compliance, improving teaching and learning quality. It means I get to attend lots more meetings than I used to around, <laughs> around the university. I was doing a bit of research. I saw that you don't actually come from an academic background. You used to be a welder, is that correct? That is true. <laughs> yeah. You have been doing your research. When I left school, I did an apprenticeship, worked in engineering for uh, quite a number of years before going back and uh, doing a degree. Do you think that that background has helped you in your new role, particularly bringing sort of unique <laughs> perspectives on things that perhaps someone who was just solely in academia for their entire careers... <laughs> It, it's help. helped me in a lot of ways. First of all, it, it, it helped me understand more what I wanted to do. You know, I was quite young when I made the, the decision to, to do the apprenticeship. So it meant that I was a was a very committed student when I went back to doing it. You know, and I've, I've dipped in and out of higher, higher education. That's not the only peer of employment I've spent mm-hmm. outside higher education. And I think that's healthy. I think it gives you a healthy perspective when you're working in a university. You know, these are complex institutions and, and often you meet a lot of people who've never worked outside this particular sector. So I think for me it works well. It gives me more of a perspective. I've also had a period of self-employment. So, you know, I think I'm more more aware of some of the pressures, the different skills required in different sectors of, of employment. As you may know, I also do a lot of work around employability in the School of Social Science. So that's something I really enjoy. It helps me to make that link with the outside world in inverted commas. Yeah, it just helps you make that connection between what's going on in here, what students need, uh, the type of skills that employers are looking for, the competing and different demands upon students when they leave uh, university. Do you think that that perspective is sometimes lost on perhaps academics who have never um, (laughs) gone outside of that particular field? I'm not sure I could possibly comment. Um, I thought so, yeah. I think for me, I find it more enjoyable. To be perfectly honest, I find it more enjoyable to have those outside connections and to work not only closely with my colleagues, but, you know, with uh, people from other backgrounds. And it also keeps you more in touch with the local community and the local business environment as well. We have a very international perspective in terms of people's research. People are um, from a variety of different countries in terms of colleagues but I think sometimes we could do a little bit more locally. But you've also worked in quite a few different countries as I understand right? Yeah that's true. I lived in Spain for a few years, uh, the Basque country more precisely. I lived in Italy. I spent time doing research in, in Denmark, lived in Denmark for a while. Um, my wife's from the US so I've spent quite a bit of time in, in the US, had a teaching gig in the US at one time as well. Yeah so I too guilty <laughs> of the international outlook. Yeah. <laughs> What can I say? There's a lot of students at this university in particular from a lot of different backgrounds, both in terms of nationality, but also, you know, mature students and where they're coming from. And you seem to have a perspective that really maybe you understand how to engage them better with your background. Would you say that's true? Well, I myself was a mature student. I think one of the things that has surprised me a great deal in being here has been the lack of mature students. I don't come across many mature students at all. I mean, if you go to uh, Denmark, for example, you know, where I spent a period studying and doing research, you'll find that it's complete anathema, the idea that you'd go straight from school to university. It doesn't really happen. But, yeah. but have you then structured your courses differently here in, in the UK, considering people are coming more straight from high school than you maybe would in the other places you've been teaching? I think one of the things that surprised me when I came back in, into higher education, one of the number of things that surprised me, was a sense that perhaps 
perhaps we could keep pace a little better with the demands placed upon students, with, with the skills required of a rapidly changing world and, you know, with what employers are looking for. And I think if you've done a variety of things, you've got more of a sense of that. I mean, the way in which I structure my courses is I tend to try to get students to reflect on why we're doing what we're doing and on the skills that they are hopefully developing along the way, as well as focusing on the, the intellectual content. I'm not very keen on long sit-down exams. You know, I like students to collaborate, to work in groups, to solve problems where possible. I think this is all very, very useful to students. A long exam and a long essay has its place. However, it would bore me to tears if I was doing that in each course and I was doing that year after year. So I think one of the things I've tried to do is take a few risks, try out a few things, see what students think of it. Think about things from a student perspective, what would be interesting interesting how can we engage students and also thinking about that from your own perspective too you know what is it about doing this that, that I enjoy and how can I make my job more interesting yeah and is your feeling just going back to that exam thing you're maybe not a huge uh, fan of it mm. is that because you feel that what's required of you to study for an exam to like lo- learn all of this vast quantity of information and then spill it out in a couple of hours that doesn't really reflect anything that you'd ever be required to do in the real world it's partly that it's partly that I myself didn't particularly like exams although I became better at them later on when I went went back to university I don't think it's necessarily a great way to assess people We know it encourages students to take a surface approach to what they're doing. So, you know, this has implications for for the depth and breadth of knowledge that you're gaining at university. Yeah, it's a memory test. You know, you can cram, you can leave things to the end. But, you know, the way I do things as well is not for everybody. Some students are better with that approach. Some students are better, you know, working under pressure, cramming towards the end. The way I tend to do things, the, the type of assessments I use, you need to be constantly on it. You need to be chipping away all the time. But that is encouraging, you know, a deeper approach. What you're looking for, really, you're looking for students to be intrinsically motivated by the content and by the way in which you're assessing them. If you're getting those things right, you're reaching a happy medium where where students are enjoying what they're doing and and they're working hard at it too. How's the feedback been? I mean, I find that students are most eager to give feedback, particularly filling out the SCEF forms when they're they're unhappy with something. Can't call them SCEF anymore. As the Director of Teaching and Learning School of Social Science, I can now inform you that, drumroll, they are called the course feedback form. Wow. Oh, okay. It's big, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> How has the feedback been? Um, Sketch just got too bad of a web. No on one the them. course feedback forms, or because your approach is unconventional, do you then seek other ways of getting feedback? The course feedback form is is a crude and one size fits all kind yeah. of method. Yeah. But I've tried to do some some pedagogic research along the way too. I've conducted focus groups with students. Okay. I've conducted face to face interviews with students to get a sense of what they think about these teaching and learning methodologies. And the feedback's been pretty positive overall. And the great thing about that is then when you go to another course, when you start another course off, it's one thing for me to give students, you know, the underpinning kind of pedagogic rationale as to why I'm doing this. It's quite another to say, this is how students experienced it. Here are some quotes. This is what students yeah. said. These are the these are the bullet points. You know, in a lot of spheres of activity in, in the university, you'll know this yourselves, that students learn a lot from each other and, and sometimes students are more willing to listen to each other than they are to members of staff. But you've had positive feedback on your group work. Oh, yeah. Not uniformly, you yeah. know. It's not for everybody but overwhelmingly the, uh, the feedback's been positive there are issues 
you will always have issues with potential free riders, people not pulling the weight. But I think one of the main problems with group work is often that it can be poorly introduced. So the rationale for why we're doing this is can often not be uh, properly explained. So making yourself clear at the beginning that this is going to be a different way of doing things is very important to you. It's absolutely crucial. You know, I'll probably split the introductory session into two parts. The first half, you know, I'll try and get stu- students fired up about the, the content, the theme of the course. But the other half of it, at least if not more, I'll spend on explaining this is why I'm doing it like this. This is what I think you'll get out of it. This is how hopefully y- you'll be intrinsically motivated around what you're doing. So you have a lot of freedom when you're doing the third and fourth year courses, but I know you also teach on first and second year courses. There seems yeah. to be less freedom in the first year course especially. So how do you take your approach to teaching and bring that into that course yeah it's more of a challenge because these are team taught and you're dealing with much bigger numbers some of the forms of assessment some of the ways we teach we can't get away from the fact that they're they're also about efficiencies if you've got hundreds and hundreds of students it's just not going to be possible to put the input into groups that i'm doing in small honors courses you know what are the marking implications of assessing in in different ways so what i do however is i speak uh, when we have teaching meetings i try to make my case for the assessment types i'm i'm using it's not easy because in teaching and learning cultures sometimes things have been done a particular way for a long time Mm. and change is often the hardest thing we have a lot of new members of the senior management team i'm sure that there are things that if they could click their fingers and change overnight about a big complex organization like this i'm sure they'd love to be able to do that but they know that you have to take a lot of people with you you can meet resistance yeah can be can be difficult change you mentioned before the feedback from the students is one of the most powerful things that you use to explain why you're doing what you're doing to the students is that also true of to your fellow academics yes i i do some of us are more aware than others what students need or what are the best ways to assess students but there are also a lot of competing pressures on academic members of staff and i'm sure you know some people would like to devote more time to developing new teaching and learning methodologies but perhaps don't feel that best way to be spending their time do you find that perhaps that's because that passion really isn't for the teaching side of things maybe they're more into the research in within the department you have those who are really passionate about teaching but those for whom teaching is something that they have to do to get on with what they really are interested in which is the research i think that's life in within universities often people are very passionate about their research you can see why academics are often experts in a very very narrow area which you know can put you in a very small club of people in the world there's a lot of power in that in that knowledge some people are good and motivated across the board some people are more interested in in teaching we can't leave out administration too which is a big part of what we do and where do you place yourself in that teacher researcher admin well i think it's probably already clear that more towards the teaching Yeah. yeah I mean, I enjoy the fact that I feel like I can make more of a difference there. Having a great class and it going well, it's a great feeling. It doesn't always go like that, but it's a kind of, if I can use a football analogy, it's a kind of Wembley <laughs> moment. Yeah. Why? Because teaching's about relationships. You're connecting with people. Just to, to round off, we'd, we'd like to ask you what advice you'd give for people coming into uni? My advice would be, first of all, follow your passion. 
Yeah. It has to start from that. You've got to listen to your parents to a degree, but they're not going to know what your passion is. You're going to know what your passion is, and it all starts from there. You've got to do something that's really going to fire you up because you're going to be sticking with it for a few years. You know, I often say to students, there are places around the world where you don't have the freedom we have here, where you can't walk in and out of the library. Having that library card in your hand for four years, that's a magic ticket to a world of knowledge. Use it. Have a good time along the way, too. That's what I did. But you've got to follow what motivates you. You know, who knows where that could lead. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank it was you an so absolute much. pleasure. Thank you so much for coming. No, my pleasure. That was your first time meeting Stuart Durkin. No, I've had a lecture by him oh, okay. in first yeah. year, I think. Yeah, yeah, he did, yeah, he did something. But I, obviously, I didn't meet him. Fabulous that, man. Yeah, that went really well. I loved him. See, this is your positive feedback, Stuart Durkin. Exactly. <laughs> I thought it was an interesting perspective with coming from a very different background. I think yeah. it is absolutely true that a lot of academics see any stage of the studies, undergraduate, master's, PhD, they're all a stage of preparation for being an academic. Yeah. I think that's been communicated to me on more than one occasion very explicitly. Yeah, and he sees it differently. That's yeah. actually the minority of people surely that actually yeah. they become academics definitely most people will go off into the world but that makes sense like that's that's the circle they're coming from as your professor so absolutely so it's refreshing having someone who's worked in research and also also just non-academic industries i think that that is what you need you need those movers and shakers in your department yeah, definitely not everyone needs to be a a big thinker and trying to yeah. try new stuff but you do need those people otherwise it gets very stale yeah where change is difficult yeah, because everyone's in the same circle yeah. but the school seems to recognize that he has a good perspective in terms of employability giving him the responsibility yeah exactly i think a lot of times it's resistance that's not actively being sort of perpetrated by a desire to things stay the same but rather just because change is actually just hard in it of itself and recognizing that something isn't actually functioning the way you wanted to maybe in the changing times like something that worked 10 years ago as he was saying might not be very useful today if you're going out into the job market you know his courses have very different ways of assessing too which i thought was interesting i feel like my form of assessment thus far in university has been pretty conventional just essays exams occasional quiz but we're also in a department most of the time in history Mm -hmm. which is quite academically focused yeah, so there isn't a lot of absolutely. change because you're taught to write academic papers because that's what they're assuming you'll be using it for yeah so absolutely should we talk about um, our comment or comment yes we yeah. actually had a professor um reach out to us after the other oh, episode we right. did about students and their perspectives where he was talking about attendance yeah. and when he first started out he was like i'm gonna be cool I'm not going to have attendance in my classes. And then no one got an A because no one were engaged. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting dilemma, isn't it? If you're um, if you're an academic, it's like you clearly can't treat students like you would as a high, if you're a high school teacher yeah. with high school students. It's fundamentally different environment. But does that mean that you then treat them basically just as adults, almost like colleagues, where you're just like... I'm just going to check on you at the end. I'm not going to chase you. Yeah. It's a form of chasing you, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when you take sure attendance. you're coming to class, yeah. You give them all the freedom. You lay out stuff. It's like, <laughs> this is how it's going to work. Come if you want to, or get an A a different way. Or maybe exactly. you don't want an A. Maybe you just want to get a C. Yeah. yeah. I think it does Let have to be things. some sort of compromise between like high school and nothing. Yeah, something between that. Yeah. yeah. I think, yeah, because what Dr. Hamamali said earlier about the Sri Lankan approach, the approach that she came from, seemed to be almost like an exact replication of the kind of high school relationship, even involving the parents. So it's like the end of the spectrum. Which means you're not even taking one foot out of the high school experience and putting it into the adult world yeah what else did we learn we learned that it's also straining for the professors yeah it's yeah it must be really yeah. hard yeah i i actually never really thought about that the whole thing of like the the nice part about teaching a class is that you get that immediate face-to-face 
response. This one really worked for me. Like this was yeah. really good. Like I felt that before. I was like, wow, that was great. Yeah. But it must be difficult because sometimes, like sometimes it is just the students in your class that are not engaged and it's not your fault. I think that can be sometimes actually the case. So it must be difficult to be like, oh, was I really bad this time? Or was I just placed in a really bad situation? It must be so difficult to engage people in the first years, though. I really didn't learn anything in the first year, like, <laughs> at all. You learned that you, politics was not for you, to be fair. And that's yes. something important to take The away. flexibility, the four-year yeah. thing, I think is brilliant. And that's, again, a Scottish thing, really. Yeah, good on you, Scotland. So this is actually our Christmas special. Because we interviewed professors. It's very different. Merry Christmas. So wait, it's a Christmas special because that's our present. Exactly. To you. No, but we won't be back again till hopefully January, yeah. This is it for now. Merry Christmas. Happy and New a Year. happy new year. Thank you to Vicky, our producer, Lassa, our music producer, Darina, who's our graphic designer. And thank you to ASR Studios for letting us use their facilities. And all the professors for taking time out of their day. And thank you to the yeah. guests. And thank you, the listener. 